This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Blowing up the movies. Sports in RPGs. Idea-based protagonists. And Coleridge's American Colony. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. In Three Cheers for Master, the good news is that Master has conquered the world! Hurrah! The bad news is that now Master is depressed. Turns out he was not actually prepared for that. What is an evil overlord to do after he achieves his life's ambition? But that's on him. What about you? You're a lieutenant in Master's army, and when Master's bummed, it's the minions who suffer. The good news is that Master's gone away. The bad news is that Master's going to come back. The good news is you've got a plan. The bad news is, it's not a very good plan, because frankly, you're not all that smart. Your plan is this. You're going to coach all of Master's ravenous, homicidal, war-hungry minions to pile on top of each other into cheerleading towers. Then, when Master comes back, the minions in your pile will all wave their pom-poms and penance and hoot and holler and cheer. And maybe Master won't kill you. At least if your tower is best, maybe Master won't kill you. Because everyone else is building their own towers and trying to get Master not to kill them. You see how bad things are? It gets worse. The problem with the towers is that the minions in your tower all want to kill each other. And when the minions at the bottom of the tower kill each other, the minions above them fall. And when falling minions are heavy, that's with a capital H must be a game term, they kill the minions they land on. And hungry minions eat weak minions even when they're not feeling violent. And claustrophobic minions die whenever they're surrounded by other minions. And you can never tell which direction a ninja minion is going to attack. At least flying minions can remain above the fray. Unless someone's a heavy minion on top of them, and they fall and get crushed. And die. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's in stores now. Look alert, minion! Master is coming! We pull open the closet and tumbling down upon us, our pork pies, our trilbies, our homburgs, our beavers, our lovely little cloches, Indeed, we are festooned, surrounded, and among our many hats. And in this episode of Among Our Many Hats, we must fight with our hats, possibly while suspended by wires, possibly in a mythical China, possibly on the mean streets of Vancouver, because we are blowing up the movies! Yeah, so this is my uh, new book uh, that came as a, a sprouting, a cutting, a... Uh an offshoot, as, as you will, of the uh, Feng Shui to Kickstarter. Uh, so Blowing Up the Movies is a collection of essays, each around 1,500 words, that looks at a number of movies that, first of all, I thought were kind of central to the Feng Shui feel. Uh, Feng Shui, of course, is the action movie role-playing game inspired by the action movies in general, but more specifically by classic late 80s, early 90s Hong Kong action cinema. Uh, we also had some people uh, pledge at the uh, past the popcorn level and uh, four people picked a movie they wanted me to talk about and that had me sort of uh, expanding the parameters a, a little bit and adding some uh, titles that I uh, might not otherwise have uh, done or in a couple of cases seen. And with supremely good grace throughout, I must say. <laughs> Well, you, you you don't want to signal too hard that a uh, uh, well the uh, the one movie that I question the, the need for great 
uh, gamerdom's love for uh, was not chosen by a patron, but rather uh, there was a stretch goal where the uh, all the backers got to vote, and uh, Equilibrium, uh, which I had not seen, uh, won the uh, the vote, and so uh, that essay is sort of in part a the castigation uh, of your fans inquiry into into why so many people love uh, that film because uh, it's. Uh, it wouldn't have made my list, let's just say. Um, <laughs> Indeed but it that's, did not. Uh, you know, an interesting springboard because uh, that is all about... There's like sort of like one cool, very gamery thing about it, which is the style of the action scenes and the idea of the character, uh, you know, being uh, a selective badass in particular circumstances. So, the you know, the construction of the film around it uh, has its flaws, but it's sort of the... Uh, the subtitle of that one is The Power of the One Cool Thing. And so that kind of gets us into a discussion of uh, crunchy bits in games and Chrome for your action. Um, and part of the idea here is that part of the essays are analyzing the films, but it's also trying to find a way to apply them to tabletop role-playing and how to run and play in RPGs and uh, also to find sort of actionable tips from them so that it's a mixture of theory and practicality. And some of those tips are very specifically oriented toward Feng Shui, but also I wanted to expand it to other games as well so that if you are not a uh, player of um, Feng Shui 2, although goodness knows why you would fit into that category. <laughs> I can't, can't figure that. But, the risible but possibility. in the implausible not you, the listener, but yes. if one out there, say your cousin, for example. Yeah, someone uh, in, in the car with you. Yes, right? exactly. You're driving along, you're listening to the podcast. You have your cousin, someone perhaps from a foreign land who does not have Feng Shui 2 yet. That could happen. Yeah, so so to the captive audience who did not select this podcast, um, <laughs> you can then... Welcome. <laughs> yes, well, first of all, welcome. And second of all, you can apply the uh, the lessons of uh, blowing up the movies to other games as well. And so it's not just... A, an extended think piece that helps you play Feng Shui too, but it's an extended series of think pieces that uh, give you ideas and inspiration for uh, running uh, any role-playing game. All right, so let's sort of talk about process, because obviously you've got a bunch of movies, you're uh, pulling pieces out of them for various role-playing games, uh, ideas, bits, both narrative and uh, sort of more scenic. What's the What's the process with it? With a movie like Seven Samurai, which you have to have seen a million times, were you able to just write that cold? Did you always go back and watch the movies when you're watching a movie that's unfamiliar to you? How many watchings did you go through before you thought, I understand this well enough to write the little essay about it? What's what's the take us through the nitty and the gritty? I watched everything once, uh, whether I had, uh, whether it was imprinted on my DNA the way that Seven Samurai is or uh, whether it was new to me. Uh, like Equilibrium or like the uh, Cayman Rider uh, live-action movie and its sequel. So um, in each case, I was going into it kind of cold, looking for what the hook would be. So in, in no instance did I really know what the, uh, what the essay was, was going to be. I had an idea. And in one case, there's uh, one particular canonical action film that I kind of thought that I'd seen by osmosis because uh, Die Hard was, uh, at the time Die Hard was gigantic I uh, worked in a video retail store and so I thought I had seen that film, not necessarily in order <laughs> but I thought I'd seen it a million times but in fact uh, there were big bunches of it that uh, uh, I guess I just mostly saw the interesting bits. I think you are burying the lead here that you have somehow gone through 
a, a life including the writing of two action role playing game action movie role playing games without seeing Die Hard. Well, I thought I thought I had, but well, it turns I mean, out I haven't. So that's a little different. Still, still though. I mean, there, there's an indictment of Canada right there. I think in America, we, we've all seen it now. I, I don't think the whole nation has to take responsibility for that. All right. Well, fine. That's very that's very good of we, you. We also believe in personal responsibility here in Canada. All right. Whatever. I'm just saying that that, that casts a whole new... So, seeing Die Hard... Uh, actually, this could be the whole thing about Robin sees Die Hard, but let's, <laughs> let's move through this. Let's force ourselves through this tar baby of a I'm concept. I'm sorry I've given you PTSD over you this. You have. It's, it's like, you, you know, hey... Uh, Ken, what'd you think of that? Uh, I don't know. Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth, not familiar with it. Anyway, um, uh, so what, what piece out of Die Hard? Let's go back. Let's, let's use Die Hard to springboard ourselves out. What piece out of Die Hard uh, becomes the takeaway for the reader of blowing up the movies? How does that ap apply? Well, Die Hard is an interesting case because actually in that one, I, I felt I had to address sort of two separate hooks or through lines. So uh, one of them is the fact that we think of Die Hard as a uh, sort of primal core action movie, but the amount of actual fighting in it is actually pretty low, that it's much more of a cat and mouse film, because, and it's especially in light of the later sequels, it's hard to remember that uh, the original Die Hard is a cat and mouse movie, and it's about that character being smart and picking off the bad guys one by one, and it's much more about suspense, and so when the bullets do actually fly the uh, impact of that is much greater, but it's not a non-stop actioner with a zillion bodies flying everywhere. And, you know, there's certainly explosions at the end, but it's not the uh, image necessarily that comes to mind when you go back and uh, look at it. So the uh, part of the essay is about how to make an action sequence more of a cat and mouse and sort of a, a chase and a pop-up thing rather than the a big explosive crazy melee that is the default in feng shui and for that matter virtually any other role-playing game where you uh, fight the, the bad guys um the other thing i focused on though is that it is also a, a prototypical 80s movie and this is why i was actually kind of grateful to come at it out of its period because its period aspects really show up in uh, day glow uh, as someone coming to it new uh, this year uh, than it would have if I'd seen it at the time when it was part of its aesthetic. Uh, and what it really hits you with is the degree to which the entire film is cheerleading for its hero, that it's part of that wave of aspirational 80s movies that is all about the rebel who does not actually threaten the social order and uh, how he's smarter than everybody else. And so and even from the very... Uh, comparatively slow beginning of the film you would never start an action movie these days with just a guy on a plane headed to los angeles <laughs> uh, the way that it does and it wouldn't you wouldn't see him at the baggage carousel it's um, a pretty slow open compared by modern standards uh, but even throughout this uh you know him on the plane you know you make sure you get a loving look from the cheerleader uh, from not the, from the uh the the flight attendant. Yeah. And uh, so the, the film continually is all about making us through John McClane uh, feel uh, better and smarter and more mavericky. So it's about that sort of weird pro authority maverick uh, character and 
uh, if you look at, you know, even Ferris Bueller's Day Off is another version of that character. And it, it's something that you still see a bit today. Um, uh, Tom Cruise is fa- still fond of having it in his movies, for example, as a, a true child of 80s cinema. If it, but, if it ain't uh, broke, don't fix it. Well, it, it's, it has, you know, it's, it's not as prevalent as it was in the 80s, mm-hmm. but it's still, you still occasionally find it. Uh, you also find it in uh, Rumble on the Bronx, which is the Jackie Chan movie that I choose to focus on in the book. And so the tips about that are about remembering to find moments for the GM to find ways to cheerlead for the PCs, because we often come from sort of a D&D tradition in which, uh, and it's D&D has grown kind of less adversarial over the years, but there's still the idea that the the GM is sort of riding herd on the characters and putting pressure on them and getting them in trouble. And those Throwing are all up obstacles part- and tightening down the, the story as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, and those are all part of it. But also, at the same time, uh, we kind of forget the emotional identification aspects or the things that make you feel good in, in Hamlet's hit points term, the uh, emotional upbeats. And so um, that essay sort of also looks at ways to make sure that your badass characters get to a fa- occasionally feel like um, badasses or uh, super uh, suave, rebellious types or, uh, you know, people that the... Uh, tavern servers uh, want to look at longingly or whatever it is that the uh, player considers an affirmation of their character's uh, coolness and competence in an action movie world. So you're watching uh, Die Hard or uh, Kung Fu Hustle or The Raid Redemption. Um, and uh, let's let's go to The Raid Redemption. We're not going to talk specifically, but in the process of, of watching a movie like that, how uh, are you taking notes? Do you uh, just say, Right after you watch it, you go, you jump to the word processor and, and vomit out a bunch of, uh, observations and, and canny insights. How, how do you take, uh, the, you know, visceral experience of watching movies that are literally, um, illiterate? I mean, they, they, they be, move so far beyond the word, even the, uh, sort of fragmentary dialogue and into pure story and visuals. How do you then, what, what, how, during that process, do you risk throwing yourself out of the film by uh, writing down notes? How do you get from there to a, a lovely critical essay? Well, my job is to be analytical, even the few films that I hadn't seen before. So, uh, I had my, uh, DVD remote in one hand with a thumb hovering over the pause button and my uh, smartphone in the other. And so when I saw something that I wanted to remember later as a possible hook, because remember throughout all, each of these films, it's like, okay, what's the thing about this movie that makes it different than the other ones? What's the through mm-hmm. line of the essay going to be? And so uh, I would just, whenever a thought seemed possibly fruitful, I would pause the film and then dictate uh, into the iPhone through the voice recognition uh, into a Google doc, uh, which I then went and um, reviewed, and that was enough of a memory jog. And so a number of those uh, notes wound up not being germane because I didn't fit the through line. And some of them you realize quite quickly what the through line of the essay is going to be. So, for example, Seven Samurai, really early on it becomes apparent, even though it's a long, epic film, how incredibly thematically economical it is and how every single scene is about the same thing. It has the same thematic core. And so uh, it's really a masterclass on how to establish a theme and make sure that every scene fits a theme. And so uh, once that becomes obvious, any other instance where it does uh, reinforce that is something that I would stop and note as a possible example. Because of course, 
in any essay, you want to be able to not just make an assertion, but back it up right. uh, with illustrations. Cool. Um, so we've talked about Seven Samurai. We've talked about Raid Redemption. We've talked in terms of sh uh, tones of shocked amazement about Die Hard. Uh, what else uh, out of the uh, collection of films that you had about equilibrium in your tones of shocked something? Um, what, what else out of the out of the box of of the contents did you? Did you take and what sort of you're watching a film and you you were either surprised by what the essay through line was going to wind up being or you were surprised by your reaction to the movie looking at it as a game text as opposed to purely a cinematic document? Because obviously a, a, a movie can make for really great gaming, like, say, Dracula 2000, while being kind of a wretched movie, like, say, Dracula 2000. <laughs> Yes, uh, speaking of someone who might have to write a bunch of uh, yes. essays on vampire films relatively this soon. This is a very self-interested about my many hats. Uh, yes. Even more so because we're both interested right. in it. We're, we're sharing a hat. Yeah. So I guess um, one thing, for example, another film that I've seen many times and enjoyed rewatching was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And what I hadn't realized before putting on my uh, game analysis goggles was how every single fight in that film furthers the dramatic through lines of the characters. And there's actually no real procedural element to the film. There's no big goal that the characters are trying to accomplish that isn't intertwined in within their emotional relationships. So it's not like, you know, uh, Star Wars, where the goal is to blow up the Death Star, or, well, it winds up being the final goal. Mm -hmm. um, but rather... Uh, and, and through that, the characters establish their relationships, but their relationships are everything in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and every single one advances a character's emotional through line. So in that essay, that wound up about being how to fuse drama system with Feng Shui too, or, uh, you know, Detective D uh, in The Mystery of the Phantom Flame, uh, you can tell from the title that it's a detective movie, uh, but the way that it uh, sort of followed both the gumshoe and the feng shui to approach uh, was also something that uh, I would not have been thinking about until I was thinking about it with this particular hat on. Okay. So those of you who were foolish enough not to back uh, feng shui too, and therefore did not get your awesome uh, copy of the PDF the way that I did, um, how do you, how do they get it? Do they just go to drive through RPG and download it? Will it be a book in book form? Uh, do they simply watch a bunch of action movies and hope that it's truth seep into their soul? How do people go I, I out recommend and steps A and B. So, and uh, B. it's available in electronic form uh, as we speak from a uh, drive through and, uh, uh, Paizo. And, uh, I think it is either, uh, now available or will be available shortly on, uh, Amazon on, in Kindle format. Uh, so you can get it not only in PDF, but in the uh, e-reader format of your choice, because it's a, just a straight book of text. It doesn't mm -hmm. have illustrations or graphics or anything, so uh, you might prefer it in that format. Um, and then uh, coming up within uh, the next few months, I think early fall probably, uh, it will also be available from Atlas Games uh, in a good old-fashioned book form. And uh, while we're plugging things, we should point out that... Uh, the most recent edition of Ken Writes About Stuff, that's the subscription series of Ken Height Goodness from Pelgrane Press, uh, is on the Spear of Destiny, which we would be doing a segment about had we not already done so. So uh, if you haven't heard episode 46, 
uh, go download that and listen to our talk on the Spear of Destiny, and then go and read Ken's Write About the Spear of Destiny as part of Ken Writes About Stuff. And uh, when we start having the plugs fly this thick and fast, we know that it is time to put the hat back in the closet and move to another hut. This podcast is also brought to you by another podcast. Game Master's Journey is a podcast all about tabletop RPGs from the GM's perspective. Your host with the most, Lex Starwalker, shares choice gleanings from over 20 years of game mastering experience. Also from his 20 years of fighting the minions of Ronan the Accuser, Lex serves up topics relevant to all GMs, no matter what your game of choice is. Interviews zero in on GMs and podcasters who love various systems. They not only highlight a particular game, but also drill deep for tips and tricks to help you enrich your players' experience. Games featured so far include Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, 13th Age, Numenara, and Star Wars. The podcast is not all. Far from it. Lex supplements the show with materials to aid you, the beleaguered Game Master. Check out his series sharing the design process for his Numenara game. Complete with actual play episodes. Jump on board now as he puts together a D&D setting for a series of world-building episodes. Find Lex's veritable cornucopia of geeky podcasts at starwalkerstudios.com. Game Master Journey is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Joyride. It's time once again for Ask Ken and Robin, and this time out at Clarky the Cruel, uh, who is musing uh, on the thought of a drama system series featuring a cricket team, uh, which to these North American eyes sounds like the way to make <laughs> cricket interesting. Uh, or drama system boring, one or the other. <laughs> I, I, I think any, uh, I think you could easily do a, a sports themed uh, soap uh, for drama system. But um, he has a broader question, which is how to use sport, or uh, again, as we North Americans call it, sports in RPGs. So, Ken, what's, uh, what comes to mind when you think about uh, a, a fusion of what. Uh, some people in geekdom call sports ball, and some people are actually both fans of sports and RPGs. Uh, how do you uh, put one in the other? Well, I mean, it, obviously you can have it as a flavor text. You can have it just like the episode of The Six Million Dollar Man where he has to go undercover on the NFL and whatever else. So you can use it as sort of backdrop and color. You can uh, Flash Gordon, for example, I think was a touch football or a football star. So that can mean your backstory. So maybe you have a shtick or a stunt that lets you, you know, uh, charge downfield and, and bowl through blockers, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and just use it as a, as a character moment or character element. Or you can make sport, uh, like, uh, this drama system might be, or like a more, uh, traditional role playing game might be, uh, something that focuses on the sports performance being a major combat or a major, uh, conflict contest, m much like sports movies do, where there is a series of games that lead up to the big championship or the big bout or the big, uh, shoot, shoot off or whatever it is that establishes the, uh, the, the, the heroes as the heroes and the fat kids are from across the lake as the villains and, uh, justice is once more restored by the use of sports. And for that, you need to have, obviously, a resolution mechanic for your sports contest, much like a mass combat system that can be, uh, dependent on player performance and possibly on the turn of the dice or the cards, but is also 
feels like its own thing so that you're not just saying for the uh, hockey uh, role-playing game uh, in which we are fighting off uh, Ithakwa's minions being helped by the sacred beaver of Canada. But in order to do that, we must progress through the seven hockey gates. Uh, the to sacred a... beaver of Canada does not help Ithakwa. He no, no, he's on your side. Oh, okay. He's like your, your coach. Oh, we're aided by the sacred You're okay. aided by them. No, 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 the sacred yeah. beaver doesn't help Ithakwa. I Good mean, the Lord. Harper government is trying to take the sacred beaver and, and put him on the side of the mythos, but that hasn't quite happened yet. I think that that's what's called constructive engagement, Robin. Yes. And, and so your, your hockey game RPG, in which your, your performance in the hockey and how you set up your lines and, and how many goals you make in which period inform the, the ability to do the magic next time, uh, you have to have a hockey resolution that feels different enough from a standard fist fight that you couldn't just say, well, why don't we just punch them like we do in all the other games? And that is where you have to sort of, I think you have to have designed, I mean, I'm not saying necessarily you go all the way to Stratomatic and, and, and model the whole thing out, but there has to be some part of the game that feels like you're playing a separate game. And this is also true, I think, in games where you have uh, poker as a as a big element, or uh, you know, if you were playing a a mystical gambling game, or even boxing, I think you should make a boxing match that's an important part of the game feel different from a simple fist fight. And so, the core then is to the extent that you have the capacity, or that your rule set has the capacity, and to the extent your players have the patience, you should try to create a subsystem or involve a subsystem from another game that makes it feel like. You're playing this series of matches, and then ideally you'll have uh, a complex enough result, as opposed to one lost, where you can use the specifics of the results to feed into future story developments. Because that way, it is more important than just flipping a coin or rolling a die or making a skill check against hockey. Right. And in a broader sense, that's uh, the real challenge of any narrative involving sports, is that giving it a set of stakes beyond itself. Because as a sports fan, when you sit down to watch the Blackhawks or the Cavs or whoever, you are, you've already chosen to be invested in its outcome and that it uh, is self-contained and uh, you're happy if your team uh, wins and you're dissatisfied if they lose and you are engaged by the same uh, set of emotional impulses that govern a compelling narrative in that you, there's a side that you identify with and you feel, uh, and there are little micro achievements along the way Although, you know, possibly not so much in, in football, that the micro achievements are so rare and, and far between that when they do happen, it's even more explosive, I guess. Um, and that would be in general, you know, usually a goal scoring thing in a team game. Uh, in boxing, it would be, you know, each individual blow and how much they sort of waver and, and so forth. But you also have to, in, if you're going to make sports then part of the story, you have to find an additional reason why you care whether one side wins or one side loses. And since you've got player characters involved, it's not that difficult to then find some other bigger consequence of their succeeding in winning a game. You can also, um, in addition to, I think, the sort of mechanical method of making it uh, work or making it relevant, you also, as you sort of allude to, you, you, you can add a story element. And whether those feed into each other, like I suggested with the mythical hockey game, uh, that uh, the, the specific goals scored at specific times or by specific players or by specific lines uh, advances certain fronts of the magical contest against Ithakwa, uh, you can also, or and you know similarly, goals scored against you make your uh, defenses against Ithakwa weak or, or hurt the sacred beaver and diminish the supply of donuts for all. Um, you also 
have an emotional context. And like you say, as a Blackhawks fan, I already have an emotional context. If the player characters are members of the team in question, then they have the emotional context, the sort of, you know, very short circuited one of I'm on this team. Therefore I should do good because I am a player character and I am awesome. But you should also have, you know, the old coach who will, uh, this is his last uh, chance at a, at a trophy or your girlfriend who is cheering you on from the sides, but, uh, you, you suspect, uh, really will, would, would, uh, would love you to get out of the sport because it's bad for you. Um, something that, that adds any kind of emotional color, e- either an accentuator or a contraster. And that way your performance in the game becomes about something more, even if it's also giving you a plus three against a Thakwa. Right. And in a genre context, you can uh, find an external goal that depends on your winning the game that fits that genre. So, you know, if you lose the spinball game, the evil aliens get to take over the continent. Or, you know, if you fail to uh, defeat the EC comic zombies at baseball, they get to eat you. And that, you know, kind of gets you in a kind of Space Jam territory where you're You should be so lucky. The the combination of those two things may seem silly to add a genre element to a sporting event, but there's kind of almost an inevitable humor that will feed into that, uh, as you see in, for example, the the Blood Bowl game. Uh, To move back a step to how to accomplish this, if you're looking for a mini-game system for whatever sport it is and you can't find something that uh, immediately works so you don't have the design time and you're a video game player you might uh you know break out the you know uh, the latest edition of madden or uh, the fifa game or whatever it is and uh play perhaps not sit down and play an entire game but play enough of that where the uh players uh, are actually playing the game and the the, uh, narrative outcome depends on uh, that Uh, the difficulty there of course is that you want to make sure that everybody is either equally familiar or unfamiliar uh, with the video game so that uh, one person's skill uh, separate from their character skill doesn't obviously determine the outcome in an unsuspenseful way. Yeah, you'd have to match player skill and character skill in a way that, you know, even it's hard enough with puzzles and uh, doing it with um, uh, um, Madden is probably uh, a bridge too far uh, for for most game groups. I I think you could also, um, there are uh, card games and other sorts of, uh, models. There's pizza box baseball and pizza box football, which are both pretty good abstractions of those sports. And again, getting good at those is probably easier than getting good at a sports-based Twitch game. Um, you, you can also provide a sense of stardom for other non-starring characters, if you get what I mean. Like if, so as you, as you're going through the, um, the, the land of, of, of Canada fighting Ithaqua, you've got your regularly, uh, starring character who may be the ritual magician or he may be the, um, the party's face. It's whoever always takes sort of the lead role in the spotlight. The sports arena is an opportunity to give that lead role or that spotlight to another character and you can base it pretty much arbitrarily because you can just say, well, look at you, you know, you're a natural born Quidditch player. You're a natural born uh, hockey player. You're the, you're a, you're a, you're, you're a natural at free throws or trick shooting. Plenty of, of sports skill is so based on your, your physicality and your, and your genetics that, um, getting good at it, it is just a matter of a training montage. It's certainly in a role-playing context. And so you can say this, you know, Susan who plays the bard and doesn't often get into the big fights, but once we get to the big contest of rounders here on the village green, turns out she's a, a, 
perfect trick shot at rounders, or you give them one specific thing that they're good at. You know, you have the unbeatable fastball, which you can unleash some number of times uh, on your on your sheet, like it, it's like a power or a, or a cleave or something. Um, you have um, a, a great slap shot, uh, and these elements can then inform player niche protection and and strengthen players who in a more normal set of games aren't. And that can help you make the athletic contest, make the sports uh, ball feel like it's different because look, in this game, Sarah is the star and Chad is the, is the winger, the side, side guy, the defenseman, the guy who's helping Sarah, you know, score the touchdown or whatever it is. Um, Another thought about just to go back to the idea of drama system, keeping track of the emotional interplay between the participants that what you could do with that is if you choose a game that is actually an ongoing league play uh, during your series, that you could map the fortunes of your fictional team to the fate of a real-life team, so that if you're doing a uh, a hockey uh, series and decide you could... Uh, well, you don't want to match it to the Leafs, because you know you're just going to lose and lose and lose. Because it'll just be... An, well, maybe for a drama system game, that is exactly what you want to do. Uh, it is true that a uh, drama system is about the consequences of failure more so than the uh, uh, success. But, uh, you know, you might pick a middle ranked team. So there's, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion that they'll be destroyed. Um, and uh, you could then, uh, obviously, you, you wouldn't necessarily be playing the actual players on the team, but you could say, okay, well, the scores are of each uh, game that unfold from week to week are the uh, real scores so that the manager player can be flying high if the Blackhawks do well, or he could be under pressure to, uh, to quit and the player might have to, uh, you know, if he gets fired, the player character might hang around for a while or that player may have to switch to a a new character because I think what you'd want to do in a a sports-based game is actually have the real-life churn uh, of uh, players and managers and other uh, people through the series in a way that you couldn't do in a TV show because, of course, you would uh, have particular actors under contract and people would get attached to them and so forth. But you could certainly do... Uh, with uh, the freedom to switch up characters and drama system. Yeah, I really like that idea of, of sort of uh, putting the fantasy back into fantasy football or fantasy baseball, where you just, like you say, you pick a middle-ranked team or even a team that you think you know how it's going to do, and Lord knows the, the the panoply of sports is full of teams that you think are going to be great or terrible, and they turn out to surprise you. I mean, the guys the, the guys who were playing the Kansas City Royals a couple of years ago uh, were, were probably as surprised as the actual Kansas City Royals. Um, so I, I think that's really terrific. And then you wind up moving your narrative uh, based on this outside, you know, to you, the players, random uh, factor in the same way that you might with the dice. And then uh, you might even be able to say, okay, we're going to go along with the performance of the White Sox as the performance of our mystical baseball team, but you guys can each alter one aspect of the box score. So you can take one error off, or you can add one hit, or you can do whatever, And that, but you only have a budget of so many per the season, so if you burn them all early, uh, then you just sit there and watch as they fall off a cliff in August. And that adds maybe a little part where the players still feel like they're contributing as opposed to being spectators uh, to the performance of the actual White Sox or Black Sox, Blackhawks or whoever it is. Right. And if you did that in like a modern occult game where, uh, you know, somehow the uh, fate of existence depends on how well your team does this season, you could... Uh, Every you know... year in Chicago, my friend. <laughs> So it could go apocalyptic or you could win and it could be all be about uh, dealing 
with uh, something that is uh, uh, outside the control of the uh, of the game system. Uh, well, I think uh, we can uh, say that we have uh, uh, scored uh, 47 baskets and won the Stanley Cup and can move on to our next segment. shuttering of IBM Selectric Keys, the glug, glug, glug of bourbon, and the snore, the soft snore of a man stretched out on a couch with a cat tell us we are entering the precincts of how to write good. And today, in our precincts, we are discussing characters that compel you to keep reading, I suppose, or to keep uh, uh, looking at all corners of the idea that you're presenting. Robin, if you could perhaps write gooder than I and tell us how to drive me through this segment and how to pick something out of it. Right. So what I want to focus on uh, today is the idea of idea-driven fiction. And uh, in uh, movie pitches that used to be called the high concept, although I think that term is a uh, uh, also a, uh, a feature of the 80s, and it's fallen out of favor a bit. And there are a lot of other uh, genres of narrative w that we think of as being driven more than, uh, by ideas than of character development. And so this is something that uh, the kernel of an idea might occur to you. And the classic example is science fiction of the sort of classic period where it's all about what would the consequences of this technology be or what would it be like if we encountered an alien species whose perceptions were like this although it's especially uh, or was especially elevated in science fiction idea driven fiction can also be uh, historical you can say oh well i'd like to write about you know the invention of uh, gunpowder and its effects on society or uh, of course, your alternate history where it's like, well, I'd like to write a story where Texas is still independent and what that meant in the 1930s. Or, uh, for that matter, uh, political fiction that tries to uh, get the audience to empathize with a particular uh, viewpoint or, you know, something that where the idea is, uh, you know, colonialism was extremely destructive or people on one side of the aisle aren't empathetic enough toward this or they're too empathetic toward that. Whatever the idea is, uh, that's a separate process than coming up with a character journey and having that be the kernel of what it is that you're doing. Now, uh, in science fiction in particular, in the past, uh, the character drama was not that acute. But increasingly, I think people require an emotional identification with the uh, character as well as uh, something interesting and new about the premise of the story. So what I want to look at are ways to start with an idea, uh, a premise that doesn't have a character attached to it, and then build in a character that will give you that second level of attachment as a, a reader as, as you go through the story so that you'll be not only engaged with the thought that the author wants to share or the premise that they want to explore, but with the person who is embodying it. So Ken, uh, I'm going to uh, hit you for 
just sort of an idea that you might have a free floating idea that you might want to explore in fiction uh, that is not so good that you want don't want to waste it on the podcast segment, but good <laughs> enough that it will serve uh, as an That's example. an all right idea, I guess. Um, I've actually, all right, here's one. I've often thought that the, uh, you know, the, the sort of order in which uh, various addictive drugs were invented or popularized is pretty much random. I mean, most of it doesn't require any chemistry that they didn't have, you know, in some cases very, very early because a lot of it is still just distillation. So I've often thought that it'd be interesting to, t to move one or another type of drug. And I don't want to say epidemic necessarily because some of the drugs like ecstasy aren't particularly epidemic. They just have strong social impacts, uh, without having set off some sort of mass cultural psychosis. But I've always thought it'd be fun to say, you know, move ecstasy back to the sixties and, and change it out and see what, uh, or, or see what, uh, you know, sixties music and then disco sounds like, uh, with E as the driver, as opposed to marijuana or say, you know, you move meth into the Victorian era, as opposed to the sort of post-capitalist world, uh, of, of the American West and Southwest that it, that it's in now. And, and how do, how do the, what we look at, uh, the meth epidemic and we say, this is a specific sort of social pathology. And how much of that is meth and how much of that is being in New Mexico in 2015? And that's sort of the questions that I, that I think about when I think about drugs. And so that obviously, uh, the drug novel is, uh, almost more than the political novel, the novel in which literally nothing happens and everyone is, uh, hates the characters and themselves by the end of it. So Robin, give us a compelling drug protagonist that will take us through one of these alternate drug histories that I've discussed. Well. Um, so it matters which one we pick. Yeah. So do you want to go with Victorian uh, meth ep epidemics or do you want to go with uh, ecstasy in the 60s? Let's go with um, uh, Victorian meth and leave ecstasy in the 60s for another uh, hut sometime. Okay, so you have an idea that you want to explore. And so before we build the character in, you're going to have to pick your thesis. So do you want uh, this story to establish the idea that it is the chemistry over history that you would have the... Uh, relatively same set of problems if you uh, move meth to the Victorian era, or do you want to establish that these things are actually historically contingent and that history doesn't, in fact, change very much? I think I want to say, and this is an interesting contrast with the ecstasy in the 60s, I think that history trumps chemistry, but chemistry trumps art. And so I would say that uh, let's go with history trumps chemistry, that you move the meth epidemic to the Victorian era and uh, history will win. OK. And so how would that um, ma manifest itself? What occurs to you as uh, possible incidents that would uh, set up the problem? Let's say we're writing a short story because we've only got a segment. <laughs> so basically, you've got room for uh, kind of a, the setup, a couple of development scenes and then uh, a payoff at the end. So uh, what scenes come to mind as you uh, roll this idea through your mind? Well, the, if, if we're doing it a short story, it has to be very economical. So you have to begin with um, uh, a meth lab somewhere in the East End or South London, somewhere like that. And probably it's being raided by the cops to set up an immediate conflict. And you, the uh, viewpoint character, are somehow involved in the meth trade and have escaped uh, to another section of the city that, that, that with the meth trade is so far uh, 
moving along unencumbered by police presence. And that will let you sort of look at uh, the one area where the cops have actually decided to treat it as a social pathology uh, and the other area where maybe someone has said, well, a drug that makes people work harder. What's wrong with that? Nothing whatsoever. And so that I think is, is where you begin to, you know, you start with the familiar and then you move into the unfamiliar. You move into an area where uh, one of the various um, big uh, industrial combines or maybe a, a, a titled aristocrat who's trying to recoup his ancestral fortunes by, you know, sort of end running around the capitalist system is using uh, meth in an attempt to sort of bolster society as opposed to as a shorthand for something that destroys society. And uh, in the end, it, does it bolster or destroy? Does this make, does meth make the industrial revolution bigger? Um, I think in the end, the argument is that uh, meth, because history is trumping chemistry in this particular case, I think that in the end, meth in a society that has uh, the fundamental values of the Victorians for good or ill becomes it becomes something that's far easier to assimilate into a belief system. And so people, I think, treat it as an evil, but maybe as a necessary evil. And so there's going to be anti-meth crusaders in the same way that they're anti-drink crusaders or anti-child uh, labor crusaders. But most of society says, well, yeah, it's bad, but fortunately, it's only poor people that do it. And so there's not a, um, there, there, there's not the sort of full on, you know, the desolation of, of, of the community if you become a meth dealer because you can always sell it on uphill because there's always a, a bigger fish waiting to take a bite. As, and you also have sort of an understanding of its place in the universe that you don't necessarily have in the more anomistic and in many cases, uh, and certainly vastly different, uh, American uh, uh, inner basin. So the, the kicker scene at the end of this idea-driven story is the workhouse where everyone is now required to take meth by the crown in order to work off their debts to society. Right. And we've got a new uh, indentured class uh, being uh, worked even harder because we have this uh, new uh, chemical. So, uh, and often it makes sense in uh, stories and in short stories in particular to uh, start with the ending and then find a beginning that agrees with that. The previous way to do uh, idea-driven fiction is basically to come up with a character who is a type and then add a couple of filigrees and quirks on top of that type to make them different from others of that type. So in that system, you might have, you know, the sinister Victorian outlaw, and then you'd add a couple of filigrees to them. But here, if we're going to have that be a surprise at the end, and we want that big reversal, let's um, have the lead character being the uh, crusading uh, Victorian detective who is... Uh, trying to crack down on this. And then at the end, they wind up being put in charge of the uh, the meth workhouse because they're, they're uh, on a practical level, they're the ones who know about it, they know where the supply is, they know how to make it, and they work for the government and they have to, but also there is a uh, a moral inversion that occurs over the course of the, the story. So you want to uh, have a character that has uh, a pair of poles, like you would see in drama system, and they would be pulled in uh, two directions throughout each of those scenes and then finally resolve toward the other one. So for a story where you have a character who begins crusading against Victorian meth and then winds up integrating it into society, uh, what two uh, dramatic oppositions would that suggest to you, Ken? Well, that um, I think that their dramatic oppositions be... that Well, that begins with the improvement of society is one, and the other one is uh, the... Res 
But see, the, they they want to improve society. They want to change society. But they also, I think, again, with Victorians, what they want is respectability and to fit in, right? So they're reformers, but they're not revolutionaries. They they don't want society to reject them. They want society to accept their 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 changes. But obviously, if it's a real change, society won't do that. Right. So you want to build a character who is torn between making change and remaining respectable or fixing things and remaining respectable. And what that implies is at the end, respectability will win mm -hmm. and they wind up doing the thing that fits in uh, socially and allows them to uh, stay in their job and maintain the idea that society is still okay over the thing that really fixes things. So the, uh, in each of the scenes, you find a way to bring that out about the character. And so in terms of the backstory, anything you create about this character's history has to explain why they are uh, both interested in reform and in respectability. And so you would have something that, as soon as you introduce them, uh, tugs them in those two directions. And in each of the development scenes, as they go through and uh, drill deeper down into the Victorian meth conspiracy, each of those scenes not only advances your idea, but forces them to choose between those two things. And uh, in order to make sure that the ending where they finally do choose uh, what uh, the reader doesn't want to see. This is a story, a dystopian story, basically. Uh, you have to have them deciding uh, for reform some of the time. They have to be genuinely pulled toward those two things. And so anything you think about that character as they're fleshing them out, uh, even like the little personality quirks that you add, those aren't just random, but they would come uh, out of the, that opposition. So, uh, you know, he might be very uh, vain about his clothing because that uh, fills the respectability side of that equation. Or, you know, he might, uh, despite his fine clothing, uh, have uh, uh, bruised knuckles because he's willing to get in there and, and fight. So he might, you know, even physically, you might describe him as sort of a brutish looking character who is uh, outwardly swathed in uh, fine clothing. And so that begins to give you all sorts of details. And that is the thing that you peg your character on as you flesh out the story and have the, uh, the incidents that uh, you take from your outline into your finished material. Okay, you've got um, these poles that will compel them back and forth in the course of the uh, story. They, they, they make decisions. They are tempted by reform. Perhaps they even accomplish a genuine reform of one kind or another, or uh, at least feel that they have uh, in order to uh, lead to the acceptance. Is there a way to make the character larger than the story, the sense that uh, their life extends outside the story? Or is that against the premise of a short, that you want the character to fit the story exactly? You you don't want to have um, extraneous sisters or whatever else um, that, that makes them, uh, that, that adds a... a a, a contrasting line or a, or a, or a side element. A short story should never be discursive. Um, it should be, everything should be about the one thing. And, uh, in a novel, you might then add, uh, you know, because you have more space and you, uh, uh, novels forgive digression a lot more than say screenplays do. You could have little, uh, side plots and add filigrees and things that sort of disguise your, intention so that the uh, gears are not so apparent. But if you decide that the character has sisters, the sisters embody either his respectable side, if he's uh, from uh, the upper class, and uh, uh, so they're the you know, reining him in and want to make sure that he doesn't uh, embarrass them with all of his uh, crusading and getting down in the muck. Or if he's a character who is uh, supporting 
the power structure from below and comes from humble origins. You know, his sister uh, might be a prostitute and he might want to conceal that from uh, the people who think he, he himself is respectable. So every element in a short story, uh, you want to somehow uh, relate to the theme. And to get to back to something we talked about in the previous segment, uh, Seven Samurai is a large movie with a big campus, but it also, every scene is all about the same uh, set of uh, contrasting elements and, and how they uh, work out over time. So even in uh, a novel, I think increasingly our attention spans are moving us away from the discursive uh, toward uh, things that are uh, uh, tighter and more focused. But you can find, if you think of a side element that interests you as a writer and you're working on a novel, you can almost inevitably find a way to tie that into your plot, because chances are you're not having that idea and wanting to go down and explore it if it doesn't somehow relate uh, to what it is that you're doing. And of course, novels allow sort of A plots and B plots. So in a novel version of this story, you can have a whole uh, collection of different characters who in some way uh, reflect the viewpoint character, or you could even intertwine uh, two uh, completely different ideas and viewpoint characters as long as they come together in some way at the end. And uh, when two characters come together some way at the end, we know that it is time to move them out of their hut and into the next hut, because those two characters, reader, were us, Ken and Robin. The Whirring of Time Gears and the Clacking of Chronotons tells us that we're once again in proximity to Ken's Time Machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to whoosh him back into time in order to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate the time streams. And in this case, uh, we had an assignment from Time Incorporated that I see your research has slightly amended. So the question is, uh, you visited the alternate timeline where Coleridge and Sothi established their socialist colony on the banks of a North American river. Uh, what was it like there? But first of all, uh, let's fill our readers in on uh, who Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, one of the founders of romantic poetry, and this other guy, Southey, uh, not William Wordsworth, as my original little sniglet of information suggested. Who were these guys? Samuel Taylor Coleridge, of course, was uh, one of the great uh, poets in, in global history, certainly in English literature. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, he's the real, uh, the real takeaway. Byron, of course, is great. Uh, you're talking about an era where you were choking on great poets, but I like Coleridge even better than I like Keats. And admittedly, that may be because Coleridge, despite working very, very hard to avoid such a fate, lived a long life and Keats died very, very young. But, uh, Coleridge, uh, probably best known, uh, certainly in, in our set for The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Kublai Khan, but, did a lot of uh, poetic uh, philosophy and then later on moved into theology and pol and other political philosophy as his life changed and his response to the political uh, climate change. But in 1794, he was young and excited and had just uh, been thrown out of the army where he had been hiding under the name um, Silas uh, Tomkin Cumberbatch. Uh, <laughs> 
And do I do I sense time stream uh, intervention here? I think that you do. But he um he was disguised as a common soldier. But when an officer used a Latin tag incorrectly, he corrected him and blew his cover as a Cambridge <laughs> graduate on the run from his debts, or not graduate. That is the best cover blowing possibly in all of recorded history. So after the payment of forty pounds by his family, he was allowed to resign as an insane person, and that is the climate in which he then comes the up. most punished well actually yes. ever. <laughs> Not all romantic poets. Anyhow, uh, Coleridge splaining aside, uh, he then, uh, in 1794, is thrown back on his own resources. Uh, Cambridge is closed to him uh, for the time being because it turns out Without uh, his sort of um, mentor, a guy named Middleton, he uh, it gets easily distracted by young ladies and drugs and drinking, uh, which they've obviously gotten out of the college uh, system since then. And he and his buddy Robert Southey, who would go on to be the poet laureate of England and the comical buffoon and foil for Lord Byron. Uh, Byron's sort of shorthand for a bad poet is Robert Southey. Um, and I think that's unfair. Southey is no Coleridge and he's not even a Byron, but... He's he's not bad, um, and he also wrote a poem about uh, a vampire uh, called Thalaba the Destroyer, so we have to love him for that reason. But Southey and Coleridge are fast friends, uh, and they think, we are such good friends, and we are so in tune with the principles of the French Revolution that we should set up a colony on the banks of the Susquehanna River in uh, Pennsylvania, originally driven by Byron's portrayal of Daniel Boone in the poem Don Juan, or Don Juan, as it is pronounced by people who haven't tried to read the poem out loud. Um, uh, Byron paints uh, Boone as this sort of ideal natural man. Uh, whether he's uh, taking the piss or not is hard to say with Byron generally in that poem specifically. But that sets off sort of a Boone mania in uh, liberal England, in poetic England. And they think, well, go to Boone's Kentucky and we'll hang out with Daniel Boone and it'll be awesome. And then they start looking at maps and things and saying, well, the Susquehanna is closer and we could get up to Philadelphia if we needed to, et cetera, et cetera. So they decide Susquehanna Valley in Pennsylvania, which is still very rural at this time, is where they're going to set up their colony. And it's going to be them and 10 other couples. There'll be 12 married couples who share everything equally and uh, share the farming equally. So everyone will have time to do poetry and philosophy and think big thoughts. And that uh, beautiful scheme has the best dumb politics title ever because Coleridge dubs it Pantisocracy, meaning the government of all by all. But of course... You can't but say pantisocracy it, so. with a straight face, and that yes. was probably the problem with it even in 1794. Uh, yes, and, and generally when poets uh, get together and dream up a utopia in our timeline, uh, it does not occur. <laughs> it goes badly. Uh, the settlement pattern uh, does not occur because uh, they're poets, and they're good at talking about things and, and not doing them. So uh, when you went over to the alternate timeline, uh, what happened to make it actually happen. Uh, what happened to make it actually happen um, in the real time, in our timeline, um, Coleridge and Southey are living together in Bristol uh, in England, and they're making contacts amongst the more radical uh, members of the ship owning and, and manufacturing community who don't like the idea of war with France. They like the idea of trading with France because France needs manufactured things and shipping because it's not super great at either of those things. Um, also, a lot of them are, are Quakers or are members of a dissenting religious sect, which makes them feel sort of anti-government anyway, and have a communitarian outlook on life to begin with. So th these are the guys that basically pay all of Coleridge's bills later on in life. Um, 
<laughs> to the extent that he doesn't make them from poetry, but he squanders most of that on opium. It was research. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Um, and so he and uh, Southey, all you really need to do is just make sure that someone has their uh, their assumption of the cost of the thing was uh, 2,000 pounds. Um, and that if they had 2,000 pounds, they could set up their colony. They had no shortage of people who wanted to be in their colony, by the way. Recruitment was not their problem. They just didn't have Kickstarter. They didn't, they didn't have Kickstarter. And so they, um, what, one of the recruiting techniques was a widow named Mrs. Fricker, who had five, uh, lovely, vivacious, tempestuous, and politically radical daughters. And as you can begin to sense, uh, much like Vinland, this is the sort of thing that leads your colony to excitement, if not to rack and ruin. <laughs> but uh, competition for the Fricker daughters is one of the reasons that people wanted to sign up for this colony. Southey uh, dated Edith Fricker, and Coleridge uh, hooked up with Sarah Fricker. And uh, if... The Fricker, if the widow Fricker, for example, marries one of these uni Unitarian um, uh, uh, or otherwise uh, dissenting uh, merchants in Bristol, he's like, well, I have a ship, um, and if I just pony up 2,500 pounds, I get all of you people out of my house, and I, you know, <laughs> I, I move along with the uh, with the goals of of the revolution and of and of. Uh, uh, peaceful uh, product progress towards utopia, which I believe in as a Bristol merchant, and I think that's what you do. I, I think that's the the the, the sort of the um, uh, the shortcut that gets them all to Susquehanna, especially because if there's an actual practical merchant involved, he's not going to listen to them saying, "Well, we haven't really figured out the pig rota," and he's like, "Well, I'll just give you more pig money. You'll you'll solve it when you get there." And um, uh, Southey actually, for a poet, is relatively practical and hard-headed, which is one of the reasons that Byron makes fun of him all the time. Um, Coleridge, of course, is just awesome. I mean, he is always uh, d getting distracted. He's, he's writing sonnets. He's arguing with people that their sonnets aren't uh, good enough. That's what happens when he meets Wordsworth in uh, two years after this. Um, he meets Wordsworth and immediately says, you have to write a big political philosophical poem and uh, stop screwing around with all these daffodils. And he manages to instill in William Wordsworth, of all people, a sense of inferiority and failure. So that's my man, Coleridge, uh, all through. Uh, so uh, Coleridge and Southey, left to themselves, wind up squabbling. <laughs> Coleridge winds up marrying Sarah Fricker, which does not work out well um, at the very least. But uh, with someone else sort of having the whip hand and giving them a free uh, ship passage. Uh, I think that they wind up in the Susquehanna, will they or nil they, and then the fun begins. And uh, what nature of fun did you behold when you got there? Well, if I'm getting there while the colony is still going on, I have to get there pretty early because uh, even in this alternate timeline where Bristol merchants want peace at home, it does not let poets be any better at farm clearing. Um most of the communes in America post-date this. The, the first ones do begin right around now at the beginning of the Second Great Awakening. They really flourish in the early 18th century in this, in the burned over district of New York that we've talked about previously. So enthusiasm, and again, they're settling in an area that is full of pietist communitarians already. They're not moving into an alien land entirely. So their neighbors are not going to reject them out of hand necessarily. So I think that by and large, you know, between Southey, who wanted to hire servants, and uh, Coleridge was like, you can't have servants. It's a socialist utopia. Are you paying no attention? <laughs> it says pantisocracy right on the front. Um, but at, yeah, he but at point. some point, um, they do uh, need to feed themselves, chop down trees, etc. And Coleridge will always pick the choice that means he doesn't have to do any work. So at some point, 
there's going to be people who come in and, and fell trees. You, you don't get to change the face of uh, uh, poetry forever if you're chopping down trees. Yes, exactly. Think about it. Um, although there was a great line where, as we are sawing through a log, we shall be writing rhyming couplets or something like that. He's talking about how all the little um, activities of, of building their farm will also be poetic activities. It's right. The, the division of labor there would be you would be sawing the log. Uh, I, yeah. Coleridge, would be composing would the Would be making the couplet up. It's yeah. just that simple. And in fairness, if if you got Samuel Taylor Coleridge, having him saw logs is almost certainly a great way to get an uneven table. Um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, the Susquehanna is not god-awful, uh, certainly not in the in the late 18th. Um, there's enough neighbors around who would have been interested in crazy poets and would have sort of put up with them. They're, uh, politically, they would have been, I think, kind of interesting as they see Thomas Jefferson uh, uh, get elected in 1800. And I think that might be right around when either their colony gets a new lease on life because the sort of excitement of Jeffersonianism draws more people to their little colony, or it winds up falling apart in a political squabble, maybe between, you know, half of them are for Burr and half of them are for Jefferson or something like that. Um, but I think that if you get there as Jeffersonianism is ramping up, you're sort of at the high point of Pantasocracy. They haven't really had a lot of really bad winters. Um, the nice people have, have built their cabins for them or have uh, built their cabins for not a lot of Bristol merchant money. And they're in a situation where they still think it can happen. They're writing probably some pretty great poetry because as we know, you know, from what happens later on, that sort of vistas of America bring out a real response from romantics. They, they do tend to kind of go nuts over it. And even though the Appalachians are not all that, they're still way better than, you know, the Cotswolds or something. And so there's going to be a lot of really great poetry that comes out of it, I think. And I think Southey, actually, it's kind of interesting because of his his practicality, his, uh, his ability, ability to get along in society. I think it's not impossible that he winds up going to work for Thomas Jefferson and that maybe there's a propaganda purpose uh, for keeping the, uh, the pantisocracy going on uh, uh, because right. Jefferson... So Jefferson says... Step one, change the name. Yes. Step two, what uh, what does he absorb from Pantasocracy? What uh, propaganda value does he wrest from it? Uh, the other the other name, by the way, is Asphiterism, which just shows that Coleridge is is actually doing this on purpose. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, so many double entendres, so, so many, little time, so much. Um, so, uh, what use does Jefferson make of? Uh, uh, Suthi in this colony. I think, I think what, uh, Jefferson, uh, first of all, he has Suthi write poems about how great Thomas Jefferson is and how great Jeffersonian principles are, uh, encomiums to the, the working man on the soil, uh, lots of stuff like that, uh, for Republican newspapers, for pro Jeffersonian purposes, um, dissing Tom, uh, John Adams, obviously, is the sort of thing that Suthi and Coleridge probably could both get in on, um, lots of stuff like that. And also, Jefferson has an interest in the experimental, and I think that Jefferson would look upon the Pantasocratic Utopia, because it is from England, because these guys are A-list poets, because Joseph Priestley, who is also a political rad radical, who has moved to America, you know, maybe uh, signs off on them. Um, the, the, he's the great chemist. Um, uh, I think that Jefferson takes them seriously in a way that no one really took say the the Owensites up in um, uh, upstate New York seriously, and so on the one hand you have a stronger tenor of utopianism in the Jeffersonian political program, but I think in the other hand you also wind up with a tempered degree of romanticism because 
at some level they are actually, you know, chopping down trees and, and planting corn and whatever else. Uh, and so there's a level of, I suspect, practicality, you know, the second or third summer after they have to keep the servants on. And that points towards a, maybe a notion that a utopian practical culture is possible. And that's what Jefferson always believed about the American experiment, that it was a practical utopia and a, pra a small scale practical utopia to point at as an example. I think that would serve him really well rhetorically. And I think it would also kind of be interesting for the future of American art movements that you wouldn't necessarily always be antinomian to be an artist, that there's this sense that you can be, uh, and in the same way that Whitman, for example, was without having Coleridge hanging around, but that you are uh, a firm belief in the uh, status quo, which is defined as something that is moving toward utopia anyway, and that your job is to cheer it on and sort of uh, point out a course and things like that, but not to act as a um, uh, as a counter narrative, but to amp uh, amplify the good half of the status quo narrative. And I think that's kind of an interesting approach. Um, American poetry, obviously, because they're Americans, um, kept it up for a great long time. But with something like Coleridge and Southey there to uh, give it that real good afterburn, that real good power boost, first of all, we probably get better poetry, um, although better poetry than Whitman is hard to imagine. But we get sort of proto-Whitmans coming out of this. Um, and then we also get a very interesting sort of uh, political approach, because again, Coleridge is, you know, one of the things he does take seriously is political philosophy. And if he's writing his political philosophy surrounded by good Pennsylvania Quakers and going to town meetings and seeing, you know, what in Britain would have been thought of as utopian government in action, I think that's kind of an interesting approach as opposed to having to take all of his cues from revolutionary France, which obviously turns out really, really horrible uh, once they simple. start rain and exactly once it goes blood simple um so now uh, an alternate history uh, story is not complete without some sort of uh, conflict or sinister plot and so far this utopia sounds pretty utopian so ken what sinister plot did you uh a uncover and b thwart when you b went back there well the sinister plot is obviously as aaron burr begins to think about his uh plans to betray america and he sees this little colony of radicals that have Jefferson's ear, that have the ability to write political propaganda that really gets people head up at election time. And they're on sort of the doorstep of the West where he intends to, to go and, and set up his own country. I think that uh, Byron, or not Byron, Aaron Burr tries to bring Coleridge or Southey into the Burr plot. And it is at that moment where a lot of them maybe are being tempted uh, and if you're wanting to make it sort of straightforward and boring, you can say it's Southey that's tempted by the Burr plot. But I think Burr's plan was insane enough that I want Coleridge to be tempted by the Burr plot uh, because he's like, well, I, I I don't know about all these compromises we're having to make. I'll bet in Burr's empire there won't be any servants. Um, and so I think that Samuel Taylor Coleridge being tempted by the Burr plot and then once Burr brings Coleridge in, it collapses, but it collapses far more excitingly than it does in our time, where Burr just sort of looks around at the collection of no goods and, and simpletons that he has and refuses to take the overt act, which will commit him to treason. I think Coleridge talks him into taking an overt act and then immediately, you know, starts arguing with him and runs back to the Susquehanna and, um, uh, and says, uh, Aaron Burr is planning awfulness and provides the sort of 
fundamentally turns state's evidence and provides the uh, eyewitness testimony to treason that lets you convict Aaron Burr as opposed to simply making him a hissing and a byword. But that moment where Coleridge and Burr are planning to possibly conquer Mexico or possibly detach Kentucky and the West from America, I think that's a that's got enough conflict for for any number of alternate histories, plus being very exciting because Aaron Burr is another one of these Byronic uh, figures, one of these sort of romantic type guys uh, with a lot of stuff going on uh, himself. And he also has a hot daughter uh, who no doubt is going to be insinuating herself in between Coleridge and by now the increasingly irate at conditions on the frontier, Sarah Fricker. So I think we have all manner of excitement once uh, Aaron Burr comes to town. Well, uh, now that we have all manner of excitement, we will pass that excitement uh, on to you, the listener, to do uh, with it uh, what you will. And we will declare uh, yet another podcast of victorious, triumphant, and romantic. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Game Master's Journey. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep our utopia going by hitting the donate button at kennethrobinthalkaboutstuff.com. Join such illustrious donors as... Samuel Kreider. Michael Parker. Daniel Callahan. And the especially munificent Eric Saltwell. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or cricket bat by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.